Intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. At the present, I do not anticipate military personnel coming into direct contact with migrants. The first wave of the migrant caravan arrived unexpectedly early at the U.S. border in Tijuana, where there's been a fortified wall for decades. They've been looking through the barricade, and some have been climbing it, teasing the border patrol on the other side. If you're going to keep plowing everything up at 2016, count me in. If you want to look forward, I'll look forward. If you want to look back, we're going to all look back. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome to the program. It's, uh, it's me, Stacy on the right, here live and direct to you from the heartland, a citizen of gr- this great nation, and just so excited about being with you today. We have a great program. Let's, uh, let's talk about who's going to be in our first hopper. First up on the guest list is Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. And then we also are going to be talking about what you just heard there in our little mashup leading into the show We're going to delve into this issue of the migrants arriving early. Now, you're probably wondering, how could you have arrived early with a, uh, you know, a thousand mile journey? How'd you do it? Well, they were bussed in. They were trucked in. They were assisted in getting here. And uh, the first group to reach the southern border is a group of LGBT uh, individuals, self-proclaimed, who had to be separated out from the larger horde because they were in danger. And so they were given special treatment and brought up a little bit earlier, and they claimed that they are going to now apply for asylum and that they've been coached. And so we'll discuss that as well. We're also going to talk about this big story that's trending today. It's, it's, I mean, it just doesn't get any better than this when you talk about the Internet and what kind of depravity can come out of people who are looking for money and power. And then, you know, boom, there you are. And here it is. It's uh, this couple Kate McClure and Mark D'Amico, they uh, had this wonderful, heartwarming story with Johnny Bobbitt, who is a homeless veteran who gave $20 to Kate when her car broke down. And, uh, you know, he miraculously had a $20 bill on him and gave it to her so she could buy gas. And she starts to go fund me for him. It raises 400000 And then that's when the story started. <laughs> so we'll get into that. Um, I want to point you over to Operation Christmas Child. You can go to... Operation Christmas Child's website, SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC, SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. This is Collection Week. You can be a part of what we're doing here at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk by taking your box or the items for your box to one of the 5,000 collection centers, one of which is just near you here in the United States. Uh, So thank you so much for that. So Today, I want to get into praying for our government leaders. And so that's going to be our encouragement slash daily confession for today. Um, And I'm just heading over to our live streams just to take a quick peek because I'm seeing uh, zero people coming in on the live stream on our little counter here. Um, Yeah, we we are not currently live streaming to Facebook. We do not have a live live stream going to Facebook right now. Um, So the prayer for our government leaders that I want to share with you is something that our pastor has put out. He has a new, so, you know, I always talk about our pastor and his wonderful prayer manual that he has um, that is taken in part from um, Mike Bickle's book, Growing in Prayer. 
And if you're triggered by me mentioning that book, just tune out. Just just put your fingers in your ears for a couple of minutes while I share with people who really care about, um, you know, growing in prayer. So this is another iteration of that wonderful book, the, the little booklet that he had out on all of the tables at the church for us to gather and take and, and use. And for some of us, especially those who've really been just like kind of eating it up, it's been three years, I think, since he put that manual out and we were able to join in and kind of participate in this. It's a quest that we're all on, that we're trying to grow as much as we possibly can, um, trying to grow and become as close to God as we can to put him first, to really orient ourselves that way so that the rest of everything else can can kind of flow from that. And one of the things that we are called to do in the Bible and that we have to really participate in as an expectation is the call to pray for our government and our leaders who are placed in authority over us in the government. And, you know, we choose them. We we decide um, what we're going to do. We're, we're going to put these individuals, um, we elect them, we send them into government, but that's not where it ends. It doesn't end with a vote. It begins with us voting for them. So this is the prayer that he has, that our pastor has in our prayer booklet for government leaders. And it's similar to things that you've probably heard prayed before, that you may have prayed yourself before, but I thought it was wonderful because it's it's simple, it's scripture-based, and it's something that once once we get into the habit of praying this way, we can add to it. We can, we, it's, it's a work in progress. So I want to share this with you. It's praying for government leaders, open the heart of our president, or it could be your mayor or your county executive. You put whoever you want, are praying for in that spot. Open the heart of our president to hear and respond to the gospel of Christ if they do not know you. Help them to accept wise counsel that you approve of, which is Proverbs eleven fourteen and fifteen twenty two. Teach them to trust in you and not in their own wisdom. Protect them from evil, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. Enable them to carry out their duties with humility toward you and towards others, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Give them courage to do the right thing under pressure, Proverbs 2.11-15. And give them a tender compassion towards those they lead and serve, Colossians 3.12. Now, this is what we're called to do as Christians, is to pray for those who are placed in authority over us and to bless them. Um Okay, so we have just a little update on our live streams. We're still having issues with those. If I'm not sure what people can see in here. I'm seeing a lot of people commenting that they can't see anything. Um, yeah, so we're going to move on and, and continue on with the show, but we're working on that in the background. If you're hearing anything, just know that we're working on it. We're, we're trying to get it together for you. Um, so I want to go into our audio. Our first audio clip is from Senator Lindsey Graham, and he's pushing back on this idea that the Democrats are going to have all of this largesse to be able to uh, investigate and do all these crazy things to um, the president and his cabinet. Yes, they have subpoena power. Yes, they have the ability to investigate people. Yes, they're, they're going to have oversight. But if they abuse it, it's not just going to be an issue of the American people being upset with them, but the Senate will be pushing back as well. And one of the good things about January, I know everyone has been really kind of, you know, looking at, oh, we, we lost the House of Representatives. The Republicans aren't in power anymore. There are a couple of things to remember. First of all, it is better to have a Democrat in a spot than a rhino Republican. And if you if you're not sure that I'm right about that, just look at Jeff Flake. 
He's on his way out the door. He's literally like a foot and a half out the door, just like his coattails are still in the door. And he's threatening to hold up the judicial appointments that are supposed to be just going through humming, you know, like a like a well-oiled machine, like the Anheuser-Busch beer machine. If you've never been to St. Louis and you are wondering what we have that's cool, we have a lot of stuff that's cool here. One of the coolest things you'll ever see in your life is the constant 365 day, 24 hour, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day production of beer that emanates right from downtown in Anheuser-Busch's own little mini city located in downtown St. Louis. It's actually kind of South City, really, but we used to live near there. We had a four family that we owned down there right on a, a park down in uh, South City, and we took the tour a couple of times with the kids. And it's something to behold, the bottles whizzing around you and the beer going into the bottles and the caps going on and all of that. It is an amazing sight to see. And so when you um, when you think about that 24-hour-a-day production and, and all of that, it kind of makes you – that's what I want you to keep in your mind when you're thinking about the installation of these judges, the replacement of these judges, empty seats on benches across the country at every level, these federal appointments that the Senate is mandated to basically advise and consent and push these nominees through that come straight from the desk of the president. And Jeff Flake is saying he's going to hold all of that up until he gets a bill through that ensures that the president cannot fire Mueller. Now, remember – in the beginning, the first year of his presidency, the president mentioned many times that he would fire Mueller, that it was a witch hunt, that there was no collusion, and he was getting upset about it. And he worried about the scope of the investigation. Well, this last year, because there's only been two years of his presidency, the president has reassured the American people, congressmen, anybody who'll listen over and over and over again that he has no intention of stopping the Mueller investigation, that we need to see it through to its final report. And now we're hearing back channel that Mueller has expanded the investigation and that it will go on well into next year instead of wrapping it up. So the Democrats and Jeff Flake, who's nothing but a glorified Democrat, are now saying that they want some kind of assurance. And, and they've gotten Flake to, on his way out, continue to stab the American people in their backs, people who voted for him, people who call him a Republican, by doing this extra illegal, extra shady, extra like he's not the guy who's your friend. He's never your real friend. He's always behind your back, backstabbing you, talking about you, planning, plotting against you. He's never got a clean face. He's never loyal. He's never upfront. He's never right to you. What what you see is what you get. That's not him. And so in response to all of this, Senator Graham says, you know, if the Democrats want to look backwards, we can all look backwards. Here he is in number two. You know, I, to my Democratic friends, if you want to look backward, we're all going to look backward. Uh, I want to know why the FBI reached the conclusion, along with the Department of Justice, that uh, Hillary Clinton didn't commit a crime. Was it because of political bias? If you really wanted to stop Trump, how in the world could you indict her? Was the reason she wasn't indicted is because they wanted to make sure that uh, they stopped Trump? And how can you stop him if you indict her? Did the yeah. Department of Justice and the FBI use a uh, document paid for by the Democratic Party, uh, researched by a foreign agent, uh, to get a warrant against an American citizen uh, that was uh, inappropriate, potentially unlawful? We need a special counsel to look at all this, but I, I intend agree. to look at it. I'm going to look at it. If you're going to mm -hmm. keep plowing everything up in 2016, count me in. If you want to look forward, I'll look forward. If you want to look back, we're going to all look back uh, to everything and everybody, not just Trump. 
And this is something that the Democrats might actually welcome. (laughs) I know you're thinking, what are you talking about? What I'm talking about is the fact that there are a lot of Democrats, millions, and some of them are in the consultant class. Some of them are in the donor class. A lot of them are um, Americans who've just had enough of the Clintons, period. And these people are seriously sitting at home having conversations around their kitchen table and online and social media groups and through secure, you know, uh, encrypted messaging on Telegram conversing about the fact that Hillary Clinton is actually gearing up for another run. So it'll be Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, possibly Kirsten Gillibrand, who says she's seeing if she's called like her prayers ever go anyplace, but right down onto the ground like pancakes. And of course, now we're hearing Hillary Clinton. Why would she run? You have to go back to the podcast. We had an interview with a really, really sharp guy who says this is all they're built for. The Clintons are a political machine. And when they're not running, they're not in power. And when they're not in power, they're not making money. And when they're not making money, this is no good for them. So uh, possibly, possibly uh, they're going to be going and and that's going to be happening. But uh, I'm my my encouragement for Democrats is this this is the house you built. And you're going to have to deal with it. And in dealing with it, they're going to be facing a real it's 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 like, how do you drive a stake in the heart of the Clinton dynasty? We we thought Barack Obama did it, but that wasn't it. We, you know, a lot of people thought that Donald Trump did it by vanquishing Hillary. But when the Democrats picked up her mantra of, well, she won the popular vote, she won the popular vote that made it plausible to consider her again. And so if she goes and speaks to a group, let's say, which we saw happen about three weeks ago, she was in front of a group or whenever it was, she made that comment about, you know, we'll be civil when we win, when we're in power, we'll be civil again um, and we'll stop being violent. She was speaking to a a group at a conference and she was up on, you know, up on the, the raised stage with another person who was interviewing her. And she was able to get, you know, maybe what sounded like 10 or 15, maybe 20 people tops to clap and show her, uh, you know, acceptance and kind of, hey, you should do this support for her running again. And so all she has to do is go to two or three events and have 20 people at each event. So, you know, basically a statistical non-event, 60 people out of 300 and some million say she should run. And all of a sudden she's back in it again. It's it's a psychological issue that the Clintons have that they can't just go into that good night and allow the rest of us to live without them. So, all right, when we get back, we're going to have Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment. Stay there. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, our tours each year fill up quickly. And so I'm letting you know now, uh, don't tell anybody else now, that the uh, 2019 Spiritual Heritage Tours are planned for June and for September. So if you want to go this year, that is 2019, you need to let us know as soon as you can. Visit the website spiritualheritagetours.com spiritualheritagetours.com again those are two separate trips one to Williamsburg, Jamestown and Yorktown and the other one to Washington D.C. and George Washington's Mount Vernon. Stephen McDowell who's the president and founder of the Providence Foundation is our historian and he'll be on both trips 
telling us the behind the scenes and the stories of who, what, when, and why. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Have you ever overheard someone saying not so flattering things about you? I remember some years ago overhearing a conversation criticizing how I was handling a project I was doing. Let's just say that they were very clear about what they thought I was doing wrong. Now, I must admit, their words kind of stung me, and at the time, I took what they said far too seriously. Let's face it, nobody really likes negative criticism. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 19 through 22, gives us some insight along these lines. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you, likewise, many times curse others. I think there are some lessons here from these few verses we can learn about words. Number one, don't take everything that is said seriously. It's as simple as that. Just don't put so much weight on everything that is said. Let wisdom and balance affect your responses. Secondly, don't grant status to undeserving criticism. When we put too much weight on something and we make it disproportionate, it's giving too much status to something that, in the scheme of things, is not that big a deal. Then thirdly, you too have said things that should not be taken seriously. Here's what I want you to remember today. Just because someone says something bad about us, it's really not the end of the world. And the other side is true too. We need to be careful about our careless speech. Now let's watch what we say. Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz is produced by Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today at Stacy on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. And if you are in the Midwest and certain other parts of the country, you've experienced the snowpocalypse, the early snow. We're supposed to be experiencing fall weather right now, but instead we've got full-blown winter, something that's not supposed to arrive until January. And I'm wondering who do I put my order into or my complaints for, uh, you know, not having the global warming that I've been told is a part of my life and that I need to be afraid of because the end of the world is nigh, yet here we are with what looks like to me six inches of snow on the ground in Missouri. It's supposed to be a blistering inferno. We're supposed to be wearing shorts. Anyway, uh, so it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program, President of American Commitment, Phil Kirpin. Phil, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Stacey. <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about the Democrats' plan for... Health care, quote fingers, in the next Congress. What's up? Well, um, Republicans did an astonishingly bad job on the health care issue in the elections. And uh, they didn't even really make an argument. They just sort of curled up in the fetal position and got beaten constantly uh, by Democrats over the head on the health care issue. Probably the number one thing that cost them so many seats. And it's kind of unfortunate because they actually have a pretty good story to tell on health care, even though they failed to get the big Obamacare repeal bill done. They did get the individual mandate repealed, and that opened up the space for the Trump administration to do a lot of deregulation. 
uh, and in particular to bring a lot of less expensive non-Obamacare options back on the market that people can now buy without having to pay the penalty tax. And, and I think that's a good thing. Republicans need to continue to give people more choices and bring down costs. Um, but Democrats now are in a position where they've got to kind of deliver something on the number one issue that they campaigned on. And the, the problem they have is about half of the Democrats in the new House majority want a totally government-run, single-payer system with private insurance illegal in this country, one of the most extreme socialized medicine schemes in the entire world. And that's kind of the Bernie Sanders plan, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And, you know, the other half, it's not really clear exactly what they want other than uh, more government control and regulation and probably more subsidies from taxpayers. And so it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see if House Democrats are able to you know, put anything forward in terms of actual legislation on health care and what that might look like. And at the same time, I think the big question for Republicans for the next couple of years is, are they going to find their voice on health care? Are they just going to keep sort of ducking and hiding and, and uh, losing the, the argument and the political issue pretty badly? Well, there's a lot, Phil, for uh, Republicans to actually talk about. Just, just I guess the president of the DNC was just recently, I think yesterday, asked how do you, you know, where do you get uh, $32 trillion or some outrageous sum, some sum that we, even in our rich nation with our record tax collection, we can't even muster the sum that's required to implement their scheme of single payer. And she said, that's an ongoing conversation. I don't know where we get the money from. That's as if she said we get it from Mars or there's an exoplanet they've recently discovered. It's the closest planet to well, our sun. We get it from there, right? I mean, yeah, the numbers don't work. The numbers don't work at all uh, for their plan. And, you know, the, the, a lot of people talk about this $32 trillion number, which was a 10 year cost estimate. That's a trillion with a T which was a 10-year cost estimate that a think tank put together. But you know, that's sort of like a real lowball estimate, as crazy as that sounds for a number that big, because they accepted uh, Bernie Sanders' assertion that doctors and hospitals would take a 40% cut in their payments uh, from what they're making now to what they'd get paid under a single-payer system. And let me tell you, Stacey, uh, hospitals are not taking a 40% cut. That will never occur. Hospitals are like the most politically powerful interest in this country in many communities. They're the biggest employer. The idea that they're going to take a 40% cut is completely insane. And so if you back that assumption out, it's probably, you know, more like $40 trillion or more. Um, and so, you know, if Democrats were ever going to try to write an actual bill with a financing mechanism of any sort, they would have to, you know, double or triple all the taxes that are paid by everyone in this country to try to pay for that. And so the, the numbers for the version of single payer they're talking about don't seem to work. And, um, now, that'll probably prevent them from ever actually seriously advancing it. You know, they've tried, and you know, they tried in the state of Vermont. Uh, it was a very small state, and they gave up because the cost didn't work. Supposedly, they're going to try in the state of California, uh, where Gavin Newsom was elected governor, saying he was for it, and Democrats now have super majorities in both houses of the legislature. But I think they're going to discover there pretty quickly that the numbers don't actually work. And so, you know, I don't know what the Democrats can actually deliver when so many of them. We're campaigning on something that's just totally impractical, and you know you, you can't actually make the numbers add up. So Democrats are huge into incrementalism, and you know they—that's why they hate it so much when Donald Trump practices incrementalism when he talks about Mexico paying for the wall. Who cares who pays for it? Now he has brought the discussion of having a wall into the mainstream, which is something the Democrats never wanted to happen, and so they will not be, ever be able to implement the single payer that they want, but they will be successful in reducing options for Americans. And 
basically kind of dragging the dead carcass of Obamacare back to life and kind of injecting it with with, uh, you know, steroids and stimulants and right raising that monster from the dead. And that's what I think a lot of Americans who they're not really sure what was wrong with Obamacare, but they know half the country opposed it. They the idea of Obamacare was good, but they know they never really realized the full promise of it, what they were told they would get. And so there are millions of Americans out there who are waiting on someone to bring them the Obamacare they were promised. And I, that I just don't believe that's possible, Phil. I believe that Obamacare, as it was promised, is just as unfeasible as their single payer pipe dreams. So what can the Republicans do to get a hold on this thing? Well, you know, I actually think they had a good story to tell this election. They just didn't bother to attempt it. They didn't try to tell it. And uh, they've, they've got to find their voice on the issue. What the Trump administration has been doing on health care um, is they've kind of said, okay, we can't get rid of Obamacare. We didn't have the votes. We were close, but we didn't get there. But, but we did get rid of the individual mandates. And what that means is Obamacare is still there. We're still spending a ton of money on it. We've got the exchanges. All of that's still there. Uh, but it's not mandatory anymore. It's now voluntary. If you don't want to be in that, if you don't want to have insurance that meets the definition and all the rules and regulations and the standards of Obamacare, you don't have to. There's not going to be a penalty tax on, on making that choice anymore. And what that does is that opens up the possibility of other products that don't meet the definition of health insurance under Obamacare, the, the sort of one-size-fits-all approach of Obamacare, uh, can be brought back to market. And that's what the Trump administration has been doing through a whole series of deregulatory actions. And so they did association health plans. So now national associations can band together and small businesses can get access to large group insurance plans. And you know, if you work for a small employer, they can go through one of these association health plans and basically offer you the same benefits that a large employer would get at the same prices that a large employer would get. That's one of the things they've done through the Department of Labor, and we're starting to see those plans rolled out by, by some of the major national groups like the National Restaurant Association and others. And uh, we, we've seen the deregulation of short-term insurance plans. These are the not-regulated options um, that don't necessarily cover all the benefits that are in Obamacare, so typically they don't include pregnancy and uh, you know neonatal and uh, typically... They do still have pre-existing condition exclusion, so if you need a pre-existing condition coverage, it probably doesn't work for you. But for people that they work for, these plans are much, much less expensive than Obamacare. I just pulled up the uh, latest, the average uh, in your state, in Missouri, the average short-term premium uh, is $81 a month, compared to Obamacare's $378 a month. So yeah, you don't get as much, but the price is much, much less. And if you read the fine print and it makes sense for your situation... That could be very, very attractive to a lot of people. Uh, more recently, the most recent step we've seen from the administration is something called health reimbursement arrangements, which will allow employers to, instead of offering a health plan, to offer an amount of money pre-tax that you could use to choose your own health plan. And uh, that's also a very positive option. And I think the whole point of what Republicans are trying to do on health care right now, and President Trump in particular, Stacey, is they want to be able to say, look, if Obamacare works for you, it's still there. It's still there for all the subsidies are there for people who qualify for the subsidies. That choice is there. Um, but there are so many people that Obamacare is not working for. And we need to have other choices and other options, particularly significantly less expensive choices and options for all the people that Obamacare is not working for. And this idea that, uh, you know, we, we, we wanted to get rid of it. We failed at that. But it's not what we were able to do, and I think this is really, President Trump's going to need to run on this in 2020. What we were able to do that's 
uh, in, in some ways, almost just as good as getting rid of Obamacare is we made it voluntary. So the people who uh, it works for, the people who want it, the people who can qualify for subsidies to make the numbers actually attractive, it's there for you. You can go sign up. You can get that. And in fact, Obamacare is kind of stabilized under President Trump. More insurance companies have come back into the Obamacare markets this year. Um, and there aren't nearly as many places with only one insurer. So there are more choices than Obamacare. And actually, for the first time, Obamacare premiums have stabilized nationally. They're about the same for 2019 as they were for 2018 after having huge increases every single year. And so Obamacare is still there. It's stabilized. It's voluntary. If people want it, they can be in it. But at the same time, we're bringing a lot of other choices, a lot of other options for people, many of which are much less expensive. So for the people who don't want Obamacare, the people that it doesn't work for, they're not going to be punished anymore. There's no more penalty tax, uh, and they're going to have other choices to look at. And I think that's got to be uh, they've got to continue. I think they're on a good path with that, but they've got to talk about it. They've got to sell it. They've got to market it to the American people, or else they're just going to be to get beaten again on the issue the way Republicans did this year. So I guess my first statement that I would make after what you just said, Phil, is that perhaps a couple of staffers could sit down with you and some of your people, and maybe you could make them a little fact sheet based on what you just told the listening audience all over the country, Um, and then maybe they could figure something out. Because I think the way you explained it just now was succinct enough and direct enough, and really there's enough positive there that I can't, I can't imagine anybody but hardcore ideologues who just hate the idea of anything that President Trump has had anything to do with opposing what you just described, which is obviously it's not the optimal utopia, which is the government pays for everything for your health insurance and it's just as good as a private health care plan, a Cadillac plan through your, your employer. But obviously, since that's a pipe dream, what you're describing is the best of both worlds. The Democrats get to keep their much-loved legacy item from the Obama administration and people who like it can use it, and everyone else can choose something else, which is much more American than the, the previous option. How do, you, how do you get what you just shared in front of someone at the RNC or someone over at uh, the White House in the communications area? Well, you know, we're going to keep saying these things, and we're going to keep pushing these things out. And I do think, you know, the, the Trump administration has done, you know, they've done talking points and fact sheets on some of this stuff. Um, it's just, it's been a situation where I think a lot of the political consultants and a lot of the candidates themselves just, you know, they sort of got convinced that, hey, you know, health care is a bad issue for us. Let's talk about something else. You know, let's try to talk about immigration. Let's try to talk about another issue. And... Um, you can't do that. Healthcare is too important to too many people. You cannot beat something with nothing, and you've got to tell your story. You got. You cannot let the Democrats have a clear field on the issue that's the number one issue to most Americans. And so, uh, I agree with you. It's a communications problem. We're trying to make this case to people. We're trying to sort of explain that, um, you know, whether you love the story we have to tell or not, uh, you got to. You got to. You got to at least try. You got to be. You got to convince people that you care about their health care and it's an issue that you're working on. And uh, frankly, um, I think it's going to come down for 2020. It's the big difference between 2020 and 2018. 2020 is going to be a presidential election, and President Trump himself is going to need to make the case to the American people that they're better off on on health care than than they were under Obama, and that he's continuing to move us in the right direction, and that uh, he needs more help. Uh, you know, he needs to be reelected and needs more Republicans in Congress to complete the job. But he's got to, 
I think, uh, really, really take credit for the positives that he has uh, been, been able to accomplish. And they've got to put people out there in front of the media, in front of the camera, people who say, this is how much I saved because of this deregulation. This is the plan I was able to get that works so much better for me. They've got to put uh, human faces on the deregulatory efforts that they've had so that people can understand and relate to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely um, in favor of, of having the president explain it. One thing I've noticed about him is he will take an issue that appears to need 10 paragraphs of explanation and boil it down to, you know, three sentences. And he'll utter it at a rally in front of the cameras where you can't really suppress that. And then millions of Americans are aware that something is either an issue or is no longer an issue or the truth about something. And then they take that nugget and then you'll see the media kind of ramp up to, to try to either debunk what he said or to try to explain what he said, to put a spin on it that's positive to the Democrats. But no matter what, the the message has been put out there. And I, I'm not sure if, if it's that consultants or people who were helping with the campaigns were like, this this isn't a winning issue for us, just leave it alone. But there was a palpable silence on the issue. And I think the president could have discussed it in all of those rallies, 50 rallies across the country. He could have explained this well. But the other thing I know, Phil, is that when Americans don't get what they want from members of Congress, they don't vote for them again the next go round. They'd rather see a Democrat sit there than a Republican who has promised things that they didn't deliver. And so with and I know the House was able to vote out the repeal of Obamacare, but McCain killed that in the Senate. And so I think Republicans in the House suffered for the actions of John McCain when he refused to vote for the, the repeal of Obamacare, and it didn't get done. Well, and that same bill also had Planned Parenthood defunding in it as well, which is another huge promise they made to, to the conservative base and then totally failed to deliver on because that bill yep. went down. I don't think they have the will, actually, Phil. I mean, it's a whole other show we could do. We could do a whole uh, two, three segments on this. I honestly don't believe the will to defund Planned Parenthood exists within the Republican Party because if it did, well, yeah, but it they would were have one vote away already. from doing it if McCain hadn't done what he did. So that's how close yeah. it was, which yeah, you know, but, might be a miracle in itself that they got that close. But that was in the same bill. Ah, I, I, so that it hinged on McCain to me stinks like a fish. Like there's, I, I just, I don't think they can do it. I don't think they can do it because if they wanted to do it, there have been other things they've really needed to get done, like the tax reform bill, and they did that by hook or by crook. Whatever they had to do to get it done, they got it done. And if they wanted to do the same thing with defunding Planned Parenthood, and, and I, I still have hopes. I, I never give up hope, but I'm definitely much more cynical about it because they were in charge for two full years uh, and, well, and had all the chambers. just the fact that Planned Parenthood spent $50 million this year electing Democrats, that they would do it just for the political reasons. Just for that. You know, if not for the underlying abortion. Just reasons. for the, the political side of it. You're so right, Phil. Yeah. Phil Kirpin, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Your expertise is greatly needed and appreciated here in our country. The work that you do at American Commitment. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye. Talk to you again. All right. So you, that was great. That was fantastic information. Share it with friends. Um, Thank you so much for being here. We'll be back with more right after these messages. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. A Republican from Oklahoma has a plan to fund completion of the wall at our southern border. Senator Jim Inhofe's solution is simple. Reduce illegal immigrants' access to federal welfare and use those savings to fund the wall. 
Here are the specifics. The WALL Act would require each person seeking to collect the child tax credit to have a work-authorized social security number instead of just the child. It would also require that E-Verify be used to prove citizenship. The minimum fine levied against illegal border crossers would be increased. With open borders Democrats poised to take over the House in January, Inhofe's plan should be implemented during the lame duck session. It's no secret that America is a great place to live. Congress should act quickly to end the attraction of taxpayer-funded easy living for illegal immigrants. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Family is an institution set forth by God. One man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com Victory McIntosh Early will I seek thee, O Lord. Man, it's something about when you start your morning off right with Abba Father. I'm telling you, will the enemy come? Of course, he's going to do his job. But it should motivate you even more. Man, I got to stay connected to the mind of Jesus. How do you do that? By getting into the Word of God. You got to do it. Tune in to Word on the Street with Victory McIntosh. Saturdays at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Democratic Georgia Congresswoman-elect Lucy McBath stands out in the same way former Democratic New York Representative Carolyn McCarthy did 22 years ago. Both came to Congress compelled to act to impose firearm restrictions after their relatives were killed by gun violence. Remember earlier this year when gun control advocates said that things would be, quote, different? Those pushing for tighter gun restrictions only made incremental progress in their quest in the midterms. Voters sent to Washington a handful of Democrats who defeated NRA-supported Republicans, but their effort may have even lost ground in the Senate. McBath's victory may give Democrats who want to alter gun policy a roadmap. Who held the district before McBath and the woman she beat, GOP Georgia Congresswoman Karen Handel, Republican Representative and Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price. Price used to win that seat with more than 60% of the vote. If Democrats are ever going to make inroads on gun policy, this is the type of district which they must flip from red to blue. However, the Senate is another enterprise altogether. Democrats are a far cry from 60 votes and operational control there. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The story sounded almost too good to be true. Johnny Bobbitt, a homeless man, gave Kate McClure, a total stranger, his last $20 for gas after she became stranded on an interstate in Philadelphia. McClure and her boyfriend, Mark D'Amico, said they went public about what happened because they wanted to help Bobbitt. We were thinking, what if we started a GoFundMe for this guy just to get him, you know, to get him off of the streets even for a weekend. The fund quickly grew to more than $400,000 with donations from more than 14,000 people. 
It's like winning the lottery. But the happy story began to crack when Bobbitt accused the couple of stealing his money, using it to fund lavish trips to Vegas, the Grand Canyon, and New York City. Local law enforcement zeroed in on the couple in recent months, raiding their home, towing away their car. An arrest seemed imminent. But this morning, a bombshell. According to a new report, authorities believe the entire tale was a ruse conceived by all three of them in a get-rich-quick scheme. According to an NBC affiliate, McClure and D'Amico have turned themselves in, but Bobbitt is still at large. The three are expected to be charged with conspiracy and theft by deception for working together to concoct the story. D'Amico and McClure always denied spending Bobbitt's money themselves, saying they were managing the money for him because of his drug habit. So... Is there anybody out there who's really shocked that this has turned out to be a total scam from the from the giddy up? Because I the first thing I thought when I heard the story was I'm not giving any money to this because in what universe does a homeless person have 20 bucks, an actual $20 bill on them and they're nearby when a woman's car breaks down but only needs gas? Like the story is so implausible. But I didn't say anything. You know, I, I actually was like, if, if the story's true, what a, what a wonderful gesture this homeless man, you know, made for this woman. And, you know, I, I hope things work out for him. But something about the story stunk. Right? I, you know, what, what are you going to do? Everyone's so excited about the beauty of the story. So you've got the three people involved. You have Kate McClure. Johnny Bobbitt is the homeless guy. And then the woman that, the, so she's, she's uh 28, 29 years old. Her boyfriend is Mark D'Amico. He's 39. And they're living together. And she, quote unquote, breaks down. And this guy gives her 20 bucks. And then she goes live on Facebook to share the story with friends to tr- and sets up a GoFundMe account and says, look, we're trying to raise $10,000 so this guy doesn't have to sleep on the, the street tonight. You know, give. Well, they end up raising. At first, it was a couple hundred thousand. It ended up being in excess of $400,000. So then you would think the story ends there. They turn over the GoFundMe account to this man and they go back to their lives and that's it. That's what you're thinking, right? Well, that is not what happened. And you might have seen updates on this story because what this is the, the funniest thing about the story is that the more updates there were, the more time went by, the more craziness was ensuing around this couple. And uh, I want to give you the call lines because when we get done talking about the story, I want to take your calls because the newest, latest, next thing we'll discuss, latest numbers out there are showing that there's another caravan forming with 100,000 people in it that's going to approach our southern border uh, from way deep down south in South America. So we'll talk about that as well. So in wrapping this up, of course, you remember the couple denied any wrongdoing, but the guy, he gets a lawyer. He gets a lawyer, this homeless guy. So they turn over about $75,000 to him, but they say he's got a drug problem. We're going to manage the money for him. Red flag number one, if they raise the money for him, it doesn't matter if it was a dollar or a million dollars, they should have turned it over. But we all know human nature. They're like, well, we should manage the money for him. He wouldn't even have any money if it weren't for us telling his story. This all comes through us. So we're going to manage the money. And by managing it, we should be able to do a few things for ourselves. You, You see how that works? It just kind of spirals out of control from there. And before you know it, you've got this couple buying themselves a BMW, taking a lavish trip to New York, which included helicopter rides around the city and all these cool Instagram pics. And now they're kind of living like mini Kardashians. 
And the guy is like, where's the money going? And when do I get my hands on the money? And they're like, you're still doing drugs. You can't have the money. Now, mind you, in the GoFundMe, they didn't say, provided he's clean and drug-free, we give him this money. They just said, help us raise $10,000 for this guy who helped us out. He was a kind-hearted guy. So the entire thing stinks to high heaven. And the further into it you go, the, the further into the story as it develops, the more you start to suspect that they really didn't expect, number one, to raise $400,000 for him. And number two, they didn't think the money was his. They felt like it was theirs, even though it was raised for him. They did the work of raising it. It was their money. And so after you take out GoFundMe's fees, because I didn't realize GoFundMe's fees were so exorbitant, they raised over 400000 but they had 360000 left after GoFundMe took their cut. Now, is that something you are? Did you know about that? The GoFundMe took such a huge portion of whatever was raised. I mean, that is a racket right there. And GoFundMe is a hardcore leftist group. If you raise money for someone on the right, they'll they'll disperse the money back out. They won't they won't even give it to you. But they take a huge cut. So then Bobbitt, at this point, he's wondering what's going on. There's three hundred sixty thousand dollars left. He's gotten about seventy five thousand in cash, goods, and services. The couple says through their attorney, hey, we've given him more than that. We've given him 200000 Well, that still leaves 160000 that you're wondering what happened to that. So, of course, civil authorities are involved. The, there's a court case. They want to know what's going on. So then the money in the GoFundMe account, what's left in there, is frozen because the couple says, well, we're, we're going to make good on the missing money. Just give us a little minute here to get it together. So then the prosecutor's office announced that the controversy was far from over and a criminal investigation would continue. And then the Burlington County prosecutor's office said they would announce new developments early on Thursday afternoon. So today, basically at the start of my show, and they're doing major new announcements on that, you know, so it's an ongoing story. I'm, I'm kind of, so this, this is the thing. Stories like this really take away from the ability of other people who have a legitimate need, who are trying to raise money on, on these sites, to really get the attention that they, they want. And all kinds of people are constantly approaching and saying, look, can you post the link to this GoFundMe? Can you post, you know, everybody's got something that they're raising money for. And so it's hard to decipher between what's legitimate and what's not. But stories like this really take away from what people can trust. It takes away from what people want to be involved in or connected to. And, um, you know, everybody's raising money. Everybody's got something that they care about that they're donating to. And they, if you, if you'll give them five minutes, they'll tell you about it so you can donate as well. And there is no end to, you know, worthy causes. And, but a lot of people, I've, I've even seen people posting online about this story because it was trending on Twitter today, that they're just not going to participate in this kind of stuff anymore. And I think that's really sad. I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty sad that anybody would scam this. But I, I have to say, are we surprised that scam artists exist? We shouldn't be. Are we surprised that scam artists would see an opportunity to get together, three friends get together, and they're like, you're the homeless guy. We are going to be in need. We're going to rescue you by putting out a GoFundMe. People are going to give because you're this sympathetic character. We're going to split the cash. And then, of course, there is no honor among thieves they raise a whole lot of money and realize we don't have to give him any. He's the, he doesn't even look like he can manage himself. Or maybe the guy really is on drugs. Who knows? They're in it together from day one. That is the latest development in this story. 
So just be careful when you're online and you're looking at uh, giving to a GoFundMe or something like that. Now, if, if you're giving $5 or $20 and you're just, you know, you're like, this is, this is worth it. I'm giving to it. Give with, with a clean conscience. And if it turns out not to be so on the up and up, you're out of $5 or $20. There's no big deal. But if you feel led to give $100 or $200 or more than that, then double check the story. Think about it for a second, you know, kind of detach yourself from your emotions and say, does this smell right? Does this sound right? Does this sound plausible? Um, and sleep on it. Pray about it. Sleep on it. Think it through. Because usually with the GoFundMe's, they have a, a amount of time, like a week, two weeks, a month, or they have an end goal, 10,000, 1,000, whatever. Um, and so that gives you time to think about it and to decide if you want to put your money there. The other thing I would say, and no offense to the GoFundMe's, because I know people use those to raise money for good things, like especially medical treatments for children and things like that. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. You just have to be wise. But I had a friend who we were actually, our kids' private school was, you know, they have the giving time every year. And I asked her if she was interested in donating. And she explained to me, and she's a God-fearing Christian woman, someone that I respect greatly. And she's a good friend to me and my family and her and her husband and her, her kids. They're wonderful people. And she said that a few years ago, well, more like 15 years ago, they were praying over their giving and they felt led to target their giving. So instead of giving 100 here, 50 there, 25 there to every single cause that popped up, that they were to be led by God on what areas they would give in. And over time, as their giving grew, they became more concentrated in where they put their giving. And so obviously this is outside of your ties. We're talking about your charitable giving. Like if someone says we're raising money for, you know, the Boy Scouts or for the church youth group or whatever, that's what we're talking about here. And she said that targeted giving had enabled them to really exponentially really just hone in on the things that they cared about and to become much more effective in advocating for those causes with other people to get other people to give. And so they have three targeted areas of giving. And I shared what she shared with me, with my husband. I, we, we prayed about it. We talked about it a little bit. And we felt like it was a really smart strategy to figure out some areas that you're very strong on, that you feel like the, these organizations glorify God. They accomplish their mission. They are good with their money. They are wise and prudent. And when we put our money here, we know it's going directly to the, the issue or the, the cause or what have you. And I, I believe that is a biblical way of approaching the issue of giving. It doesn't mean you can't still give, you know, $20 or something, or, or but, but the bulk of your giving is targeted towards one or two or three areas that you feel God has led you to and that you've prayed over so that it, you're working in concert with him as opposed to, you know, casting in, in many, many different directions. And so it's something to pray about and everyone will have what God has for them. It will be clear to you what God has for you to do. But it's it's an interesting quandary to be in because sites like GoFundMe, due to their nature that they're online based only, and it's really, it's a story that you tell that either tugs at people's emotions or it doesn't. It prompts people to give or it doesn't. It's so, it's like such a fertile ground for, um, for corrupt dealings, for, for people to trick other people. And so it's obvious that the majority of the GoFundMe's are not, they're not scams because the stories would be so like, the, this is a story that was trending on Twitter today. I remember clicking on it. I thought 
this morning, I just went on Twitter for a couple of minutes. <laughs> I was like, I looked over on the left-hand side where the trending items are. I was like, um, why is GoFundMe trending? And the first thing I thought, you know how it is on Twitter. You're like, oh, no, the head of GoFundMe has passed away. So I clicked on it. And what I saw when I saw that the, it was about this story, I thought, oh, I forgot about these two. I clicked through to the and, and the story after story, all the news organizations are covering it and doing, uh, you know, packages on it. It's a sad, sad thing because, you know, we've all been there. You might be looking at, you know, you just have a little bit of disposable income, you know, after you've paid out, you've tied, you've paid your bills, you know, you, you get taken care of your necessities, you have a little bit of extra money there. And you look at, you know, some story where you're like, wow, oh my goodness, I'd love to help, you know, this family lost their home or whatever. And you're like, well, let me, let me give. And so you give that money and you're giving it to what you feel is a good cause. And so you have to think about how many people, it was thousands, tens of thousands of people who gave to this GoFundMe account for this homeless man. And how many of them were giving out of, you know, what little they had left only to find out later that this couple and this guy included the homeless guy too, scammed them out of over $400,000. It's a sad story. It's a sad story. So I'm covering it today on the show because we've got to be really careful when we see these uh, GoFundMe accounts and these stories about, you know, not that you can't give or that you can't participate, but we got to be wise. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's going to be I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, if you want to join the program, give us a call. Call lines are open at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. We, uh, I, I have some fun stuff going on with uh, the website over at stacyontheright.com. It's not up yet, but we are going to be rolling out a new iteration of the website that's going to be much easier to use, much more user-friendly and simplified so that you can find everything that you're looking for streamlined process for the mugs because we've had some snafus on the mug orders and um, it's just going to be a, a much better site so look for that I'll, I will keep you up to date on that as that develops um, we have obviously this this incompetence really and I'll just I'll just say this I've been unhappy with Secretary Kirsten Nielsen's um, actions in preserving the the national sovereignty of this country at the southern border. And it looks like I'm not the only one. And now we have a little bit of proof that there's some incompetence going on there. Um, I, I, not, not happy. Not happy at all. So that's the music. Good evening from the heartland. OneNewsNow.com news and information is up next for those of you who are sticking around. God bless from the heartland.